This is an ABC podcast. Cities are once again on the move. But COVID-19 still has a foot on the brake. In this episode of Future Tense, we'll get an update on just how well public transport is doing in the not-quite-post-pandemic era. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. We'll also talk micro-electric vehicles and ride-hailing at altitude. First of all, it's a movement within aviation that has been building for about the last four or five years. But it's really gained some momentum, I would say, in the last couple of years. So it's not just one company that's doing this. There are approximately 200 companies around the world who are working on electric vertical takeoff and landing technology, who are working on these new small aircraft, most of which would seat only around four passengers. And, you know, in a way, the easiest way to consider them is a replacement for a helicopter. Which is fine by me, because you can't imagine how reluctant I am to use the term flying taxi. But there we are, I've done it, so let's move on. To Europe first, to transport analyst Nick Augustine and a public transport initiative that's just wound up in Germany. For €9 Euros per month, people in Germany were able to use all forms of public transport. So that would be the subway, the bus, the tram, but also the regional trains. So you had a wide array of public transport at your disposal at a fixed fee per month. Of course, it's very popular. If you look at the plane numbers, about 52 million tickets sold across a period of three months. So in that sense, it's, it's a big success. And in fact, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has been on record of calling this initiative one of the best ideas of late. It's going to get a follow-up. It will still be a, a monthly ticket, but it won't be as cheap anymore, but it will be affordable. I think the price range is set around like 50 to 70 euros, give or take. Yes, the nine euro German transport pass was a massive success, particularly with tourists. It got people back onto the trains, trams and buses. And in terms of patronage, it wasn't just like old times, it was even better. But... There is a downside, of course, to this, especially in the early weeks. With trains in particular, you saw massive overcrowding, extremely busy platforms, trains on certain sections of track being very busy. And in fact, Deutsche Bahn, the, the national operator, for example, had to withdraw the, the offer of people taking their bicycles along because they would take up a lot of space. So in, in that sense, you know, there, there were some issues. And of course, there was talk of, you know, will this have some environmental benefits? There's been an investigation into that as well. And, you know, people that were on the train were already sort of frequent users of public transport. So in that sense, it did not convince, for example, motorists to switch to trains uh, permanently. So it was just people that were used to taking public transport, using it even more. Overall, though, as far as experiments go, the German government clearly saw benefits in drastically lowering fares to try and kickstart a sluggish public transport system. And in other areas of Europe, there have been similar trials. Professor Graham Curry at Monash University in Melbourne has been running a project looking at the COVID-19 impacts on public transport around the globe. 
Well, we're monitoring 40 cities worldwide, and the average currently is about 75% ridership from pre-COVID levels. And it's steadily grown since 2021, and we seem to be on an upward trend. So 75%, what's holding those others back? There are two key factors. One is infection fear, and we think that this will last after the virus has gone. The other is we've seen a shift in work patterns with more people working from home during the week. This has become more acceptable, and that will act to reduce commuting. But, you know, we'll still be working. It's just that people will be having different lifestyles with less time on the train. We've done quite a lot of research on this in Australia, and we asked people in the population what they would do after the virus has gone. And on average, about 20% said that they wouldn't be coming back. Are your findings consistent across the, the various countries that you examined? Consistent amongst the countries that are like us, you know, car-dominated, large CBDs with business areas. In Asia, recovery is much better because they really rely on their transit systems. They have no alternatives, to be honest. And uh, some of those cities have returned to full usage. But that's pretty rare. The pattern we're seeing in Australia is consistent amongst cities that are like us. What should we make of the various initiatives that are underway in Europe at the moment that involve heavily discounted fares or in some cases no fares at all? I think a lot of the European initiatives are very concerned about the cost of living, which has increased immensely in Europe as a result of you know fuel prices increasing, the Ukraine crisis. And one of the great things governments can do is they can affect the fares very quickly. But that doesn't mean to say it would work in an Australian context. It'll certainly increase ridership, but there's lots of other policy priorities. And in the Australian context, you know, free fares are probably going to benefit people on higher incomes that live in inner city areas with better public transport. So it's a complex beast. But yes, they've been very successful in Germany and they've been helping people deal with the fuel crisis they're facing there going into winter. But different contexts require different policies for different aims. I once chaired a conference of social groups who are interested in transport for people who were disadvantaged and asked them, would they like half a billion dollars of investment in new services or half a billion dollars for free fares? And 99.9% of them said they wanted more services because really if it's free and you haven't got any, it doesn't matter. You still can't use it. Various cities are taking various approaches to public transport. Is Is there anything that specifically caught your eye? Well, there's lots of innovation going on around the world all the time. Something which is very effective at the moment is driverless trains in the big capital cities. And this is coming to Australia, of course. In Sydney, we have a driverless train system. This enables more frequent services, lower costs, more reliable services, requires investments. And, you know, the new suburban rail loop in Melbourne that they're talking about running driverless trains there, quite exciting. Asia, more than 40% of all their trains are driverless already. So there's a big innovation. There's innovations in new technologies to do with buses, a new technology called the trackless tram, which is effectively a bus that looks like a train and can be operated much cheaper than a train. And the investment required to put it in place would be much less. And they're like an urban metro system, but with rubber tyres, But the technology is really sort of developed to enable us to run buses that are really of the same quality as railways. 
Now, we've been focused on metropolitan areas. What about rural and regional areas? How are they affected? Well, they've always had not as big public transport systems, but the regional rail networks to our major cities have had an important commuter function. And they've been down, much like the metropolitan railways. And I think what's happening here is we're getting a lot more people working from home rather than travelling all the way into the city. And I think that will sustain itself beyond COVID. But buses have been quite buoyant in the bush, actually. In fact, they're one of the more successful stories throughout all of this. People are trying to avoid crowded services, and buses have always had modest service levels and are not as crowded. Graham Curry at Monash University. Now, Ainsley Hughes at the University of Newcastle has also been examining transport trends coming out of COVID. And she's been looking at the growth of what's called DRT, Demand Responsive Transport, or if you don't fancy that name, you could also call it on-demand public transport. It's what happens when you take a ride-hailing app, mix it with a minibus, and then apply it to an established rail or bus network. On-demand or demand-responsive transit is, I guess, a new mode of public transport that looks to match service provision with customer demand. So rather than using a traditional fixed route and fixed timetables, it generally operates using a service zone. So if you can imagine a boundary that is drawn around a particular area and any customers within that area can book a trip to a location within the zone at a time that's convenient to them. So where traditional public transport is, I guess, really good for moving large groups of passengers in really high-density urban centres, on-demand is more suited to those that live on the peripheries of our suburbs or in those sort of more rural locations where maintaining a fixed route is kind of no longer economically or socially viable. So on-demand can specifically work to fill the gaps in the network in that way. And one of those gaps that's long been established is what's called the first and last mile connectivity issue. People are reluctant to use public transport if they've got to walk, say, a kilometre to get to the train station or the bus stop. Can this help overcome that problem? That's one of, I guess, the major use cases that we're seeing globally for on-demand services, where, you know, particular infrastructure such as heavy rail or trunk route fixed buses can only really fulfil a particular part of a customer's journey and may only get them so far to a major centre. And so we're seeing on-demand used to basically fulfil exactly, as you said, that first mile, last mile solution. So say, for example, there is an on-demand service that's been rolled out in the south of Auckland called AT Local, and it specifically is being used as a feeder to the heavy rail line there. So we're seeing people are using it to get to and from Takanini Station as part of their daily commutes. Because we've generally got smaller vehicles and a more attractive and convenient style of service, it's really driving patronage back to public transport in places where people were quite apprehensive to share those spaces with others during the pandemic. And just to be clear, it's a supplement to major public transport, isn't it? It's not a replacement for the bus and train services that, uh, that operate across the city. Absolutely. So in those places that are high dense, large volumes of people moving around every day, a fixed route bus is still going to probably be the best option for its ability to move around lots of people in the one vehicle. But this has really got a lot of potential in those places where a fixed route bus just can't go. And like I said, particularly in those rural or low dense settings where there just aren't enough people to justify the need to maintain a large diesel fixed route bus. 
Having said that, we are seeing other transit authorities around the world using it as a replacement for low-performing routes. So again, referring back to the case of AT Local in Auckland, they had a route, the number 371, that was performing quite poorly, had quite low patronage. And so Auckland Transit have moved to actually remove that route and replace it with on-demand. So we've seen a rise in on-demand public transport, but this isn't a new idea, is it? I mean, various places tried this around about a decade ago, not to enormous success. What makes this current iteration different from a decade ago? Really, it's the rapid developments in technology that we've seen in the last decade. So the kind of platforms and algorithms that are now being used to power on-demand services can provide transit authorities with a really high level of operational efficiency by aggregating sort of that demand and helping roll out services that group together passengers that have like-minded needs and wanting to go to similar locations. I think, too, as we move out of that experimental phase, we're seeing lots of the global lessons that are learned in particular places being shared with other transit authorities. And we're really at a point where private industry and public sector are looking to work together uh, to figure out what exactly the sorts of issues on demand can solve. And the technology involved here, there's a nod, isn't there, to, you know, app-based ride-hailing services like Uber? That's everyone's kind of first thought, I think, that is, is this an Uber-style bus? And in some ways, operationally, it might feel like that on the surface in that you can book a trip through an app and you get picked up when you want and go where you want to go. But there are some fundamental differences, I guess, with the way that on-demand transit systems work. The first one is that ultimately these are still shared vehicles. So you're not booking a vehicle that's just going to come and pick you up and take you on your own individual journey. So whilst you might book a trip to a particular place, you need to have the expectation that that vehicle will deviate from the route and pick up other passengers along the way. So this, so is, this is genuine ride sharing? Yeah, genuine ride sharing, very much a shared experience. So I guess that's one fundamental difference. And then I guess the second fundamental difference is that this is still ultimately a publicly funded and provided service. So where your traditional sort of ride hail or Uber are a private service, they tend to go where the money is. So it's it's not surprising to find greater Uber coverage in high density areas where there's going to be the most revenue. But what we're seeing DRT used for is in those low dense rural suburbs where there is no other service and the prices are comparable. People can take an on-demand journey for the same price that they would on their traditional fixed route bus. The advantage of public transport is that it takes cars off the road. Doesn't this though, doesn't this mean more vehicles will have to be involved? That's one way you could look at it, certainly. But I guess if we think about the sorts of problems that on-demand is solving in particular, we actually are doing more to get more people in the same vehicle. So if we're looking at a low performing or a low patronage route or diesel buses running in low density areas, it's not uncommon to have a look around and see large diesel buses running a route with almost nobody on them. So what we can do by removing those buses and putting on demand in is actually matching the certain level of service provision with the demand that's there in a particular context. So I guess that's one way in that we are trying to remove those big empty diesel buses. I guess secondly, being such an attractive service in that you can actually get to places you want to go to, it's more likely to compete with the private car in terms of convenience and therefore drive mode shift to public transport. 
And I guess thirdly, we're more likely to see a DRT service make use of smaller agile electric vehicles. So in that way, it's also really good for addressing some of those sustainability goals. So this could help in the transition, I guess you'd say, uh, that public transport has to do moving away from petrol towards electric. Absolutely. And certainly we're seeing that in places like New Zealand. They've been really proactive in setting out a recent agenda for addressing sustainable transport. Two of the sort of key action areas in that agenda are DRT and using electric vehicle fleets. So absolutely, using these smaller electric vehicles not only reduces significantly the amount of carbon produced by public transport, but because they're smaller vehicles, they often require far less charging infrastructure than the equivalent electric buses. So this is definitely a really good stepping stone for transit authorities that are looking to reduce their carbon emissions from public transport. Dr Ainsley Hughes from the University of Newcastle. And speaking of smaller electric vehicles... One trend that's starting to gain traction in the overall transition away from fossil fuels is a growing interest in battery-powered microcars. Chinese manufacturers are currently the innovators in this space and it seems they've stolen a march on their European and American competitors. As Professor Stefan Bratzel explains, he's from the Centre of Automotive Management in Germany. When you're looking at Mercedes or the Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche group, they started a bit late in uh, producing, developing and producing uh, electric cars. And they start with the bigger ones like the Porsche, Taycan, Mercedes uh, with the EQS. They uh, started with larger cars and now they have a roadmap. But in the roadmap of Volkswagen, for instance, We won't see before 24, 25, a small or microelectric car. So they leave the market now to the Chinese car manufacturer. And that's a danger, of course. But they can't tighten their roadmaps at the moment and can change their roadmap now because it takes a few years to build these cars. So we don't expect before 24, 25, any small electric cars from German car manufacturers. And is one of the issues here small profit margins, that many of the manufacturers just think there's not enough money in developing small electric vehicles? Yeah, that's quite true. If you don't um, are um, accustomed to building electric cars at all, you start from top and going uh, down. If you're uh, designing uh, cars, top cars are large uh, cars because the profit margin uh, large cars uh, is much higher than small cars. And the more you understand uh, how to um, develop and produce these uh, electric cars, which is quite difficult. Uh, having in mind that the battery capacity you build into these electric cars is the main cost factor. And we have an issue here of uh, charging uh, infrastructure because smaller the battery of the electric car is, uh, the less or the smaller is the range of these electric cars. And the larger the battery is, of course, you've got more range and don't have a need to charge that often. And so um, as we don't have a very dense charging infrastructure yet uh, in Germany or in all Europe, there's a tendency to build in quite big uh, batteries, which are quite costly. And so uh, the micro cars uh, that are having a big battery are quite costly. uh, And so uh, it's more or less a problem. So you have to build up 
dense charging infrastructure before you can build small electric cars. So you need a, a quite dense and high charging infrastructure to be successful. If China already has a significant part of the manufacturing market with regard to small electric vehicles, does that put uh, Europe and other places like North America at a disadvantage in the future? Yeah, well, I think so. Chinese uh, car manufacturers are quite innovative. It's First of all, it's a problem for the, the Western car manufacturers like the German ones in the Chinese market, yeah, because you're looking at Volkswagen. Volkswagen sells about 40% of its global production into the Chinese market. And so if the Chinese car manufacturers getting uh, more and uh, more markets, uh, then uh, yeah, Volkswagen like Mercedes or BMW has a problem even in the market in China. Uh, but we have the same problem then in the US uh, or in uh, Europe uh, that the Chinese car manufacturer will uh, come in, especially with their, their electric cars and also their small electric cars. And if they are successful in gaining a market share in uh, this um, German uh, market, then it could be uh, difficult to win that uh, market back from the Chinese car manufacturers. So that's the, the danger. But on the other hand, it's not that easy for the Chinese uh, to um, conquer the European market. It's also a dense market and the Chinese tried it yeah, in 2007, 2008 to get into the European market and it was a complete failure. And that is still in the minds and memories of many uh, in Germany. So they will look quite intensively uh, whether the quality of these cars is really good. Stefan Bratzel from the Centre of Automotive Management in Germany. And you're with Future Tense. And our theme is moving about the city. Moving about and above. Autonomous air taxis could soon be gliding across Brisbane's skyline in a bold move aimed at improving transport for the 2032 Olympic Games. A prototype of the pilotless air taxis was unveiled in the city centre. The planes fly They're actually called EVTOL. And while some of us have long harboured doubts about the practicality of filling the skies above our cities with propeller-driven taxis, it seems the much-hyped aircraft have quite a few devotees. First of all, it's a movement within aviation that has been building for about the last four or five years, but it's really gained some momentum, I would say, in the last couple of years. So it's not just one company that's doing this. There are approximately 200 companies around the world who are working on electric vertical takeoff and landing technology, who are working on these new small aircraft, most of which would seat only around four passengers. And welcome back to the program, aviation analyst Charles Alcock. You know, in a way, the easiest way to consider them is a replacement for a helicopter. Now, most people, of course, have never flown in a helicopter and probably suspect they never will do. The difference with the EVATOL concept is that these things, assuming they get approved, could be mass-produced like cars. They could be produced in huge numbers and used for applications such as air taxi services, and the scale at which they would be used in theory, I stress in theory, would mean that the cost of using them would be far, far less than going out and chartering a helicopter. 
So the dream is to have tens of thousands of these things operating in major cities around the world that have road congestion and offer people a way to avoid that congestion and basically make short hops in and around crowded cities. What are the hurdles that they have to overcome to make that a reality? Well, on one level, the first hurdle is to achieve what's called type certification. So in aviation, whenever you bring a new aircraft to market, you have to get the aviation authorities to say, yep, that's safe and we'll let you fly it. And many of these companies are involved in that process at the moment. The complication there is this is a new type of aircraft. It can't just be approved like a helicopter has been approved in the past or like a a fixed wing aircraft has been approved. There are new rules that are being devised to cover this. But I think that's achievable. And potentially the first aircraft could be approved by about 2024, which is not far away. But then at the same time, and you referenced that meeting in Brisbane, You know, there has to be public and societal acceptance of this concept. And it's understandable that people are somewhat skeptical. They might look at these things and think, you know, this is crazy. How on earth are we going to fill our city airspace with, you know, thousands of these little things buzzing around? Isn't that going to be annoying and dangerous? And the industry faces a very significant challenge to convince people that actually those concerns are not well-founded. And the truth is, this is fundamentally different from anything we've seen in aviation before. I've heard these aircraft flying in flight tests, and they are substantially quieter than any helicopter I've ever heard. I mean, a lot quieter. There's no really no comparison. But they will also have to have permission to land. City governments will have to say, okay, fine, you can land them on that building or you can land them on that soccer pitch. One of the features that's been talked about for these types of aircraft is autonomous control. How significant is that and where is that at? That would be a major leap forward, autonomous control. I mean, that's almost more significant than the fact that these things will be electrically powered. So when we talk about autonomous flight, fundamentally what we're talking about in most instances is an aircraft that would not have a pilot on board. And of course, to many people, that would be a a very alarming notion. They're very accustomed to getting on an aircraft and seeing um, a gentleman or a lady wearing a pilot's cap. Just to be clear, there would essentially still be a pilot. It's just that he or she will now be on the ground, essentially operating the aircraft from a sort of ground control center, more like an air traffic controller. And potentially these vehicle operators could be operating multiple aircraft at the same time. And the technology that's going to enable that is a mixture of essentially artificial intelligence and machine learning so that the aircraft's already automated systems can operate without there having to be a pilot in the cockpit. Who are the major players when it comes to the development of this type of craft? Are we seeing the the traditional aircraft manufacturers being involved or are we talking about new players to the field? It's actually a mixture. I mean, much of the noise from this sector is coming from young startup companies in places like California and Europe. And the reason you hear a lot of noise for them is because they're fundraising the whole time. So they're having to talk this up. But at the same time, we also are seeing major players like Boeing, for example, who've invested in a company called Whisk, which is developing a four-seater autonomous air taxi, Evertol aircraft. And in actual fact, they've been conducting some early trials of a technology demonstrator, both in Australia and also in New Zealand. And they feel that really the only way to fulfill the potential of these new Evertol aircraft is to go to fully autonomous operations. They just don't feel the business model will work if you have to have these things piloted in the traditional way. There are often optimistic forecasts about when, the, when new technologies will arrive. What's the best bet with this 
type of craft? I, I know you, as you mentioned before, there are still quite significant technical and regulatory issues to get through. Yeah, well, I think the EVATOL aircraft that are intended to operate with a pilot on board, which isn't that radically different from what's happening today, I think they will be in limited commercial use in a handful of early adopter cities from about 2025 and in the second half of this decade. But I I stress that will be on quite a small, somewhat experimental scale. If we're talking about fully autonomous commercial operations, I think that's probably going to go well into the 2030s before that's really established. But again, just to be clear, this isn't some sort of big bang moment where overnight we're going to switch to fully autonomous EVATOLs. It's going to be quite progressive. And much of this technology, frankly, is already there in existing aircraft. You know, a lot of the Airbus and Boeing aircraft that we fly on today, they have increasingly high degrees of automation. So in a way, they're already operating to some degree in this autonomous way. It's just that for now, there's still a pilot on board, you know, essentially supervising the whole thing. Charles Alcock from the news platform futureflight.aero. And in this edition of Future Tense, we also heard from Stefan Bratzel, Ainsley Hughes, Nick Augustine and Graham Curry. Karen Savanovitz was my co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.